What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Preface of The Storm. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denny Sayers in Modesto, California. The Storm by Daniel Defoe. A collection of the most remarkable casualties and disasters which happened in the late dreadful tempest, both by sea and land. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 The Preface Preaching of sermons is speaking to a few of mankind. Printing of books is talking to the whole world. The parson prescribes himself, and addresses to the particular auditory with the appellation of my brethren. But he that prints a book ought to preface it with a noverint universi. Know all men by these presents. The proper inference drawn from this remarkable observation is that though he that preaches from the pulpit ought to be careful of his words, that nothing pass from him but with an especial sanction of truth, yet he that prints and publishes to all the world has a tenfold obligation. The sermon is a sound of words spoken to the ear and prepared only for the present meditation, and extends no farther than the strength of memory can convey it. A book, printed, is a record, remaining in every man's possession, always ready to renew its acquaintance with his memory, and always ready to be produced as an authority or voucher to any reports he makes out of it, and conveys its contents for ages to come, to the eternity of mortal time, 
when the author is forgotten in his grave. If a sermon be ill-grounded, if the preacher imposes upon us, he trespasses on a few. But if a book printed obtrudes a falsehood, if a man tells a lie in print, he abuses mankind, and imposes upon the whole world, he causes our children to tell lies after us, and their children after them to the end of the world. This observation I thought good to make by way of preface, to let the world know that when I go about a work in which I must tell a great many stories, which may in their own nature seem incredible, and in which I must expect a great part of mankind, will question the sincerity of the relator. I did not do it without a particular sense upon me of the proper duty of an historian, and the abundant duty laid on him to be very wary what he conveys to posterity. I cannot be so ignorant of my own intentions as not to know that in many cases I shall act the divine, and draw necessary practical inferences from the extraordinary remarkables of this book, and some digressions which I hope may not be altogether useless in this case. And while I pretend to a thing so solemn, I cannot but premise I should stand convicted of a double imposture to forge a story, and then preach repentance to the reader from a crime greater than that I would have him repent of, endeavouring by a lie to correct the reader's vices, and sin against truth to bring the reader off from sinning against sense. Upon this score, though the undertaking be very difficult among such an infinite variety of circumstances, to keep exactly within the bounds of truth, yet I have this positive assurance with me, that in all the subsequent relation, if the least mistake happen, it shall not be mine. If I judge right, tis the duty of an historian to set everything in its own light, and to convey matter of fact upon its legitimate authority, and no other. I mean thus, for I would be as explicit as I can, that where a story is vouched to him with sufficient authority, he ought to give the world the special testimonial of its proper voucher, or else he is not just to the story. And where it comes without such sufficient authority, he ought to say so, otherwise he is not just to himself. In the first case he injures the history, by leaving it doubtful where it might be confirmed past all manner of question. In the last he injures his own reputation, by taking upon himself the risk, in case it proves a mistake, of having the world charge him with a forgery. And, indeed, I cannot but own tis just that if I tell a story in print 
for a truth which proves otherwise unless i at the same time give proper caution to the reader by owning the uncertainty of my knowledge in the matter of fact tis i impose upon the world my relator is innocent and the lie is my own i make all these preliminary observations partly to inform the reader that i have not undertaken this work without the serious consideration of what i owe to truth and to posterity nor without a sense of the extraordinary variety and novelty of the relation i am sensible that the want of this caution is the foundation of that great misfortune we have in matters of ancient history in which the impudence the ribaldly the empty flourishes the little regard to truth and the fondness of telling a strange story has dwindled a great many valuable pieces of ancient history into mere romance how are the lives of some of our most famous men nay the actions of whole ages drowned in fable not that there wanted penmen to write but that their writings were continually mixed with such rodomontades of the authors that posterity rejected them as fabulous from hence it comes to pass that matters of fact are handed down to posterity with so little certainty that nothing is to be depended upon from hence the uncertain accounts of things and actions in the remoter ages of the world the confounding the genealogies as well as achievements of belus nimrod and nemrus and their successors the histories and originals of saturn jupiter and the rest of the celestial rabble who mankind would have been ashamed to have called gods had they had the true account of their dissolute exorbitant and inhumane lives from men we may descent to action and this prodigious looseness of the pen has confounded history and fable from the beginnings of both thus the great flood in deucalion's time is made to pass for the universal deluge the ingenuity of daedalus who by a clue of thread got out of the egyptian maze which was thought impossible is grown into a fable of making himself a pair of wings and flying through the air the great drought and violent heat of summer thought to be the time when the great famine was in samaria fabled by the poets and historians into the story of phaeton borrowing the chariot of the sun and giving the horses their heads they run so near the earth as burnt up all the nearest parts and scorch the inhabitants so that they have been black in those parts ever since these and such like ridiculous stuff have been the effects of the pageantry of historians in former ages and i might descend nearer home to the legends of fabulous history 
which have swallowed up the actions of our ancient predecessors king arthur the giant gogmagog and the briton the stories of saint george and the dragon guy earl of warwick bevis of southampton and the like i'll account for better conduct in the ensuing history and though some things here related shall have equal wonder due to them posterity shall not have equal occasion to distrust the verity of the relation i confess here is room for abundance of romance because the subject may be safer extended than in any other case no story being capable to be crowded with such circumstances but infinite power which is all along concerned with us in every relation is supposed capable of making true yet we shall nowhere so trespass upon fact as to oblige infinite power to the showing more miracles than it intended it must be allowed that when nature was put into so much confusion and the surface of the earth and sea felt such extraordinary a disorder innumerable accidents would fall out that till the like occasion happen may never more be seen and unless a like occasion had happened could never before be heard of wherefore the particular circumstances being so wonderful serve but to remember posterity of the more wonderful extreme which was the immediate cause the uses and application made from this terrible doctrine i leave to the men of the pulpit only take the freedom to observe that when heaven itself lays down the doctrine all men are summoned to make applications by themselves the main inference i shall pretend to make or at least venture the exposing to public view in this case is the strong evidence god has been pleased to give in this terrible manner to his own being which mankind began more than ever to affront and despise and i cannot but have so much charity for the worst of my fellow-creatures that i believe no man was so hardened against the sense of his maker but he felt some shocks of his wicked confidence from the convulsions of nature at this time i cannot believe any man so rooted in atheistical opinions as not to find some cause to doubt whether he was not in the wrong and a little to apprehend the possibility of a supreme being when he felt the terrible blasts of this tempest i cannot doubt but the atheist's hardened soul trembled a little as well as his house and he felt some nature asking him some little questions as these am i not mistaken certainly there is some such thing as a god what can all this be what is the matter in the world certainly atheism is one of the most rational principles in the world there is something incongruous in it with the test of humane policy because 
there is a risk in the mistake one way, and none another. If the Christian is mistaken, and it should at last appear that there is no future state, God or devil, reward or punishment, where is the harm of it? All he has lost is that he has practiced a few needless mortifications, and took the pains to live a little more like a man than he would have done. But if the atheist is mistaken, he has brought all the powers whose being he denied upon his back, has provoked the infinite in the highest manner, and must, at last, sink under the anger of him whose nature he has always disowned. I would recommend this thought to any man to consider of, one way he can lose nothing, the other he may be undone. Certainly a wise man would never run such an unequal risk. A man cannot answer it to common arguments, the law of numbers, and the rules of proportion are against him. No gamester will set at such a main, no man will lay such a wager, where he may lose, but cannot win. There is another unhappy misfortune in the mistake, too, that it can never be discovered till tis too late to remedy. He that resolves to die an atheist shuts the door against being convinced in time. If it should so fall out, as who can tell, but that there is a God, a heaven, and hell, mankind had best consider, well, for fear it should be too late, when his mistakes appear. I should not pretend to set up for an instructor in this case, were not the inference so exceeding just. Who can but preach, where there is such a text? When God himself speaks his own power, he expects we should draw just inferences from it, both for ourselves and our friends. If one man, in an hundred years, shall arrive at a conviction of the being of his Maker, tis very well worth my while to write it, and to bear the character of an impertinent fellow from all the rest. I thought to make some apology for the meanness of style, and the method, which may be a little unusual, of printing letters from the countryside in their own style. For the last I only leave this short reason with the reader, the desire I had to keep close to the truth, and hand my relation with the true authorities from whence I received it, together with some justice to the gentlemen concerned, who, especially in cases of deliverances, are willing to record the testimonial of the mercies they received, and to set their hands to the humble acknowledgment. The plainness and honesty of the story will plead for the meanness of the style in many of the letters, and the reader cannot want eyes to see what sort of people some of them come from. Others speak for themselves, and being writ by men of letters, 
as well as men of principles, I have not arrogance enough to attempt a correction either of the sense or style. And if I had gone about it, should have injured both author and reader. These come dressed in their own words, because I ought not, and those because I could not mend them. I am persuaded they are all dressed in the desirable, though unfashionable, garb of truth, and I doubt not but posterity will read them with pleasure. The gentlemen who have taken pains to collect and transmit the particular relations here made public, I hope will have their end answered in this essay, conveying hereby to the ages to come the memory of the dreadfulest and most universal judgment that ever Almighty Power thought fit to bring upon this part of the world. And as this was the true native and original design of the first undertaking, abstracted from any part of the printer's advantage, the editor and undertakers of this work, having their ends entirely answered, hereby give their humble thanks to all those gentlemen who have so far approved the sincerity of their design as to contribute their trouble and help forward by their just observations the otherwise very difficult undertaking if posterity will but make the desired improvement both of the collector's pains as well as the several gentlemen's care in furnishing the particulars i dare say that they will all acknowledge their end fully answered and none more readily than the age's humble servant. End of the Preface to the Storm Chapter One of The Storm This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Storm by Daniel Defoe Chapter 1 Of the Natural Causes and Original of Winds Though a system of exhalation, dilation, and extension things which the ancients founded the doctrine of winds upon, be not my direct business, yet it cannot but be needful to the present design to note that the difference in the opinions of the ancients about the nature and original of winds is a leading step to one assertion which I have advanced in all that I have said with relation to winds, viz., that there seems to be more of God in the whole appearance than in any other part of operating nature. Nor do I think I need explain myself very far in this notion. I allow the high original of nature 
to be the great author of all her actings, and by the strict reign of his providence is the continual and exact guide of her executive power. But still, tis plain that in some of the principal parts of nature she is naked to our eye. Things appear both in their causes and consequences. Demonstration gives its assistance and finishes our further inquiries, for we never inquire about God in those works of nature which, depending upon the course of things, are plain and demonstrative, but where we find nature defective in her discovery, where we see effects but cannot reach their causes, there tis most just, and nature herself seems to direct us to it, to end the rational inquiry and resolve it into speculation. Nature plainly refers us beyond herself to the mighty hand of infinite power, the author of nature, and original of all causes. Among these arcana of the sovereign economy, the winds are laid as far back as any. Those ancient men of genius who rifled nature by the torchlight of reason, even to her very nudities, have been run aground in this unknown channel. The wind has blown out the candle of reason and left them all in the dark. Aristotle, in his Problems, section 22, calls the wind Eris Impulsum. Seneca says, Ventus est er fluens. The Stoics held it motem at fluxionem eris. Mr. Hobbes, air moved in a direct or undulating motion. Fournier, le vent est un mouvement agitation de l'air calci par des exhalations et vapeurs. The moderns, a hot and dry exhalation repulsed by anti-peristasis. Descartes defines it venti nil sunt nisi moti i dilati vapores. And various other opinions are very judiciously collected by the learned Mr. Bohun, in his Treatise on the Origin and Properties of Wind, page 7, and concludes that no one hypothesis, how comprehensive soever, has yet been able to resolve all the incident phenomena of winds. Bohun of Winds, page 9. This is what I quote them for, and this is all my argument demands. The deepest search into the region of cause and consequence has found out just enough to leave the wisest philosopher in the dark, to bewilder his head and drown his understanding. You raise a storm in nature by the very inquiry, and, at last, to be rid of you, she confesses the truth and tells you, it is not in me you must go home and ask my father. Whether then it be the motion of air, and what that air is which is as yet 
undefined, whether it is a dilation, a previous contraction, and then violent extension, as in gunpowder, whether the motion is direct, circular, or oblique, whether it be an exhalation repulsed by the middle region, and the antiperistasis of that part of the heavens, which is set as a wall of brass to bind up the atmosphere, and keep it within its proper compass for the functions of respiration, condensing, and rarefying, without which nature would be all in confusion. Whatever are their efficient causes, tis not much to the immediate design. Tis apparent that God Almighty, whom the philosophers care as little as possible to have anything to do with, seems to have reserved this as one of those secrets in nature which should more directly guide them to himself. Not but that a philosopher may be a Christian, and some of the best of the latter have been the best of the former, as Vosius, Mr. Boyle, Sir Walter Raleigh, Lord Verulam, Dr. Harvey, and others. I wish I could say Mr. Hobbes, for twas pity there would lie any just exceptions to the piety of a man who had so few to his general knowledge, and an exalted spirit in philosophy. When, therefore, I say the philosophers do not care to concern God himself in the search after natural knowledge, I mean, as it concerns natural knowledge, merely as such. For tis a natural cause they seek, from a general maxim, that all nature has its cause within itself. Tis true, tis the darkest part of the search, to trace the chain backward, to begin at the consequence, and from thence hunt counter, as we may call it, to find out the cause. T'would be much easier if we could begin at the cause, and trace it to all its consequences. I make no question, the search would be equally to the advantage of science, and the improvement of the world, for without doubt there are some consequences of known causes which are not yet discovered, and I am as ready to believe that there are yet in nature some terra incognita, both as to cause and consequence, too. In this search after causes, the philosopher, though he may at the same time be a very good Christian, cares not at all to meddle with his maker. The reason is plain. We may at any time resolve all things into infinite power, and we do allow that the finger of infinite is the first mighty cause of nature herself. But the treasury of immediate cause is generally committed to nature, and if at any time we are driven to look beyond her, tis because we are out of the way, tis not because it is not in her, but because we cannot find it. Two men met in the middle of a great wood. One was searching for a plant which grew in the wood, 
the other had lost himself in the wood and wanted to get out the latter rejoiced when through the trees he saw the open country but the other man's business was not to get out but to find what he looked for yet this man no more undervalued the pleasantness of the champion country than the other thus in nature the philosopher's business is not to look through nature and come to the vast open field of infinite power his business is in the wood there grows the plant he looks for and tis there he must find it philosophy's a ground if it is forced to any further inquiry the christian begins just where the philosopher ends and when the inquirer turns his eyes up to heaven farewell philosopher tis a sign he can make nothing of it here david was a good man the scripture gives him that testimony but i am of the opinion he was a better king than a scholar more a saint than a philosopher and it seems very proper to judge that david was upon the search of natural causes and found himself puzzled as to the inquiry when he finishes the inquiry with two pious ejaculations when i view the heavens the works of thy hands the moon and the stars which thou hast made then i say what is man david may very rationally be supposed to be searching the causes motions and influences of heavenly bodies and finding his philosophy aground and the discovery not to answer his search he turns it all to pious use recognizes infinite power and applies it to the ecstasies and raptures of his soul which were always employed in the charm of exalted praise thus in another place we find him dissecting the womb of his mother and deep in the study of anatomy but having as it may be well supposed no help from johann remelini or of the learned riolanus and other anatomists famous for the most exquisite discovery of human body and all the vessels of life with their proper dimensions and use all david could say to the matter was good man to look up to heaven and admire what he could not understand psalm i was fearfully and wonderfully made etc this is very good and well becomes a pulpit but what's all this to a philosopher tis not enough for him to know that god has made the heavens the moon and the stars but must inform himself where he has placed them and why there and what their business what their influences their functions and the end of their being tis not enough for an anatomist to know that he is fearfully and wonderfully made in the lowermost part of the earth but he must see those lowermost parts search into the method nature proceeds upon in the performing the office appointed must search the steps she takes the tools she works by 
and, in short, know all that the God of nature has permitted to be capable of demonstration. And it seems a just authority for our search that some things are so placed in nature by a chain of causes and effects, that upon a diligent search we may find out what we look for. To search after what God has in his sovereignty thought fit to conceal may be criminal, and doubtless is so, and the fruitlessness of the inquiry is generally part of the punishment to a vain curiosity. But to search after what our Maker has not hid, only covered with a thin veil of natural obscurity, and which upon our search is plain to be read, seems to be justified by the very nature of the thing, and the possibility of the demonstration is an argument to prove the lawfulness of the inquiry. The design of this digression is, in short, that as where nature is plain to be searched into, and demonstration easy, the philosopher is allowed to seek for it. So where God has, as it were, laid his hand upon any place, and nature presents us with an universal blank, we are therein led as naturally to recognize the infinite wisdom and power of the God of nature, as David was in the texts before quoted. And this is the case here. The winds are some of those inscrutables of nature in which humane search has not yet been able to arrive at any demonstration. The winds, says the learned Mr. Bowen, are generated in the intermediate space between earth and the clouds, either by rarefaction or repletion, and sometimes haply by the pressure of clouds, elastical virtue of the air, etc., from the earth or seas, by submarine or subterranean eruption, or dissension or resolution from the middle region. All this, though no man is more capable of the inquiry than this gentleman, yet to the demonstration of the thing amounts to no more than what we had before, and still leaves it as abstruse and cloudy to our understanding as ever. Not but that I think myself bound in duty to science in general, to pay a just debt to the excellency of philosophical study, in which I am a mere junior, and hardly more than an admirer, and therefore I cannot but allow that the demonstrations made of rarefaction and dilatation are extraordinary, and that by fire and water wind may be raised in a closed room, as the Lord Ferulam made experiment in the case of his feathers, but that, therefore, all the causes of wind are from the influences of the sun upon vaporous matter first exhaled, which, being dilated, are obliged to possess themselves of more space than before, and, consequently, make the particles fly before them, 
This does not seem to be a sufficient demonstration of wind, for this, to my weak apprehension, would rather make a blow like gunpowder than a rushing forward. At best, this is indeed a probable conjecture, but admits not of demonstration equal to other phenomena in nature. And this is all I am upon, viz. that this case has not equal proofs of the natural causes of it that we meet with in other cases. The scripture seems to confirm this when it says in one place, he holds the wind in his hand, as if he should mean other things are left to the common discoveries of natural inquiry, but this is a thing he holds in his own hand, and has concealed it from the search of the most diligent and piercing understanding. This is further confirmed by the words of our Saviour, The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but knowest not whence it cometh. Is plainly expressed to signify that the causes of the wind are not equally discovered by natural inquiry as the rest of nature is. If I would carry this matter on, and travel into the seas and mountains of America, where the mansonets, the trade winds, the sea breezes, and such winds as we have little knowledge of, are more common it would yet more plainly appear that we hear the sound, but know not from whence they come. Nor is the cause of their motion parallel to the surface of the earth, a less mystery than their original, or the difficulty of their generation. And though some people have been forward to prove the gravity of the particles must cause the motion to be oblique. Tis plain it must be very little so, or else navigation would be impracticable, and in extraordinary cases where the pressure above is perpendicular, it has been fatal to ships, houses, etc., and would have terrible effects in the world, if it should more frequently be so. From this I draw only this conclusion that the winds are a part of the works of God by nature, in which he has been pleased to communicate less of demonstration to us than in other cases, that the particulars more directly lead us to speculations, and refer us to infinite power more than the other parts of nature does. That the wind is more expressive and adapted to his immediate power, as he is pleased to exert it in extraordinary cases in the world. That is more frequently made use of as the executioner of his judgments in the world, and extraordinary events are brought to pass by it. From these three heads we are brought down directly to speak, of the particular storm before us, viz. the greatest, the longest in duration, the widest in extent, of all the tempests and storms that history gives any account of, 
since the beginning of time. In the further conduct of the story, twill not be foreign to the purpose nor unprofitable to the reader to review the histories of ancient time and remote countries, and examine in what manner God has been pleased to execute his judgments by storms and tempests, what kind of things they have been, and what the consequences of them, and then bring down the parallel to the dreadful instance before us. We read in the scripture of two great storms, one past and the other to come. Whether the last be not allegorical rather than prophetical, I shall not busy myself to determine. The first was when God caused a strong wind to blow upon the face of the deluged world, to put a stop to the flood, and reduce the waters to their proper channel. I wish our naturalists would explain that wind to us, and tell us which way it blew, or how it is possible that any direct wind could cause the waters to ebb. For to me it seems that the deluge being universal, that wind which blew the waters from one part must blow them up in another. Whether it was not some perpendicular gusts that might by their force separate the water and the earth, and cause the water driven from off the land to subside by its own pressure. I shall dive no farther into that mysterious deluge, which has some things in it which recommend the story, rather to our faith than demonstration. The other storm I find in the scripture is in the God shall rain upon the wicked, plagues, fire, and a horrible tempest. What this shall be we wait to know, and happy are they who shall be secured from its effects. Histories are full of instances of violent tempests and storms in sundry particular places. What that was which mingled with such violent lightnings, set the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on fire, remains to me yet undecided. Nor am I satisfied the effect it had on the waters of the lake, which are to this day called the Dead Sea, are such as some fabulous authors have related, and as travellers take it upon them to say. End of chapter 1 of the storm Chapter 2 of The Storm This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Storm by Daniel Defoe Chapter 2 Of the opinion of the ancients that this island was more subject to storm than other parts of the world. I am not of opinion with the early ages of the world when these islands were first known that they were the most terrible of any part of the world 
for storms and tempests. Camden tells us the Britons were distinguished from all the world by unpassable seas and terrible northern winds, which made the Albion shores dreadful to sailors, and this part of the world was therefore reckoned the utmost bounds of the northern known land, beyond which none had ever sailed, and quotes a great variety of ancient authors to this purpose, some of which I present as a specimen. Et benitus toto divisus orbe Britannus, Britons disjoined from all the well-known world. Chem litus adjusta, Horeshit Libye, Ratibus impervia tule, taken frequently for Britain. Ignotum fretum, Claudius. And if the notions the world then had were true, it would be very absurd for us who live here to pretend miracles in any extremes of tempests, since by what the poets of those ages flourished about stormy weather was the native and most proper epithet of the place. Belluosas qui remotis, obstrepit oceanus britannis. Horace. Nay, some are for placing the nativity of the winds hereabouts, as if they had been all generated here, and the confluence of matter had made this island its general rendezvous. But I shall easily show that there are several places in the world far better adapted to be the general receptacle or centre of vapours, to supply a fund of tempestuous matter than England, as particularly the vast lakes of North America, of which afterwards. And yet I have two notions, one real, one imaginary, of the reasons which gave the ancients such terrible apprehensions of this part of the world, which of late we find as habitable and navigable as any of the rest. The real occasion, I suppose, thus, that before the multitude and industry of habitants prevailed to the managing, enclosing, and improving the country, the vast tract of land in this island, which continually lay open to the flux of the sea and to the inundations of land waters, were as so many lakes, from whence the sun continually exhaling vast quantities of moist vapours, the air could not but be continually crowded with all those parts of necessary matter to which we ascribe the original of winds, rains, storms, and the like. He that is acquainted with the situation of England, and can reflect on the vast quantities of flat grounds, on the banks of all of our navigable rivers, and the shores of the sea, which lands at least lying under water every springtide, and being thereby continually full of moisture, were like a stagnated standing body of water, brooding vapours in the interval of the tide, must own that at least a fifteenth part of the whole island may come into this denomination. 
let him that doubts the truth of this examine a little the particulars let him stand upon shooter's hill in kent and view the mouth of the river thames and consider what a river it must be when none of the marshes on either side were walled in from the sea and when the sea without all question flowed up to the foot of the hills on either shore and up every creek which he must allow now is now dry land on either side the river for two miles in breadth at least and sometimes three or four for above forty miles on both sides of the river let him farther reflect how all these parts lay when as our ancient histories relate the danish fleet came up almost to hartford so that all that range of fresh marches which reach for twenty-five miles in length from where to the river thames must be a sea in short let any such considering person imagine the vast tract of marshlands on both sides the river thames to harwich on the essex side and to whitstable on the kentish side the levels of marshes up from the stour from sandwich to canterbury the whole extent of the low grounds commonly called rumney marsh from hythe to winchelsea and up the banks of the rother all which put together and being allowed to be in one place covered with water what a lake would it be supposed to make according to the nicest calculations i can make it could not amount to less than five hundred thousand acres of land the isle of ely with the flats up the several rivers from yarmouth to norwich Beckleys and the continued levels in the several counties of norfolk cambridge suffolk huntington northampton and lincoln i believe do really contain as much land as the whole county of norfolk and tis not many ages since these counties were universally one vast morass or loch and the few solid parts wholly unapproachable inasmuch that the town of ely itself was a receptacle for the malcontents of the nation where no reasonable force could come near to dislodge them tis needless to reckon up twelve or fourteen like places in england as the moors in somersetshire the flat shores in lancashire yorkshire and durham the like in hampshire and sussex and in short on the banks of every navigable river the sum of the matter is this that while this nation was thus full of standing lakes stagnated waters and moist places the multitude of exhalations must furnish the air with a quantity of matter for showers and storms infinitely more than it can be now supplied withal those tracts of land being now fenced off laid dry and turned into wholesome and profitable provinces this seems demonstrated from ireland where the multitude of lochs lakes bogs and moist places 
serve the air with exhalations, which give themselves back again in showers, and might be called the piss-pot of the world. The imaginary notion I have to advance on this head amounts only to a reflection upon the skill of those ages in the art of navigation, which, being far short of what it is since arrived to, made these vast northern seas too terrible for them to venture in, and, accordingly, they raised those apprehensions up to fable, which began only in their want of judgment. The Phoenicians, who were our first navigators, the Genoese, and after them the Portuguese, who arrived to extraordinary proficiency in sea affairs, were yet all of them, as we say, fair-weather seamen. The chief of their navigation was coasting, and if they were driven out of their knowledge, had work enough to find their way home, and sometimes never found it at all. But one sea conveyed them directly into the last ocean, from whence no navigation could return them. When these, by adventures, or misadventures rather, had at any time extended their voyaging as far as this island, which, by the way, they always performed round the coast of Spain, Portugal, and France. If ever such a vessel returned, if ever the bold navigator arrived at home, he had done enough to talk on all his days, and needed no other diversion among the neighbours than to give an account of the vast seas, mighty rocks, deep gulfs, and prodigious storms he met within these remote parts of the known world, and this magnified by the poetical arts of the learned men of those times, grew into a received maxim of navigation, that these parts were so full of constant tempests, storms, and dangerous seas, that twas present death to come near them, and none but madmen and desperados could have any business there, since they were places where ships never came, and navigation was not proper in the place. And Thule, where no passage was, for ships their sails to bear. Horace has reference to this horrid part of the world, as a place full of terrible monsters, and fit only for their habitation, in the words before quoted. Beluosus qui remotus, obstrepit Oceanus Britannus. Juvenal follows his steps. Quanto delfino balena Britannica major. Such horrible apprehensions those ages had of these parts, which, by our experience, and the prodigy to which navigation in particular, and sciential knowledge in general, is since grown, appear very ridiculous. For we find no danger in our shores, no uncertain wavering in our tides, no frightful gulfs, no 
horrid monsters, but what the bold mariner has made familiar to him. The gulfs which frightened those early sons of Neptune are searched out by our seamen, and made useful bays, roads, and harbours of safety. The promontories which running out into the sea gave them terrible apprehensions of danger are our safety, and make the sailors' hearts glad, as they are the first lands they make when they are coming home from a long voyage, or as they are a good shelter when in a storm our ships get under their lee. Our shores are sounded, the sands and flats are discovered, which they knew little or nothing of, in which more real danger lies than in all the frightful stories they told us. Useful sea-marks and land-figures are placed on the shore, buoys on the water, lighthouses on the highest rocks, and all these dreadful parts of the world are become the seat of trade and the centre of navigation. Art has reconciled all the difficulties, and use made all the horribles and terribles of those ages become as natural and familiar as daylight. The hidden sands, almost the only real dread of a sailor, and by which, till the channels between them were found out, our eastern coast must be really unpassable, now serve to make harbours, and Yarmouth Road was made a safe place for shipping by them. Nay, when Portsmouth, Plymouth, and other good harbours would not defend our ships in the violent tempest we are treating of, here was the least damage done of any place in England, considering the number of ships which lay at anchor, and the openness of the place, so that, upon the whole, it seems plain to me that all the dismal things the ancients told us of Britain and her terrible shores arose from the infancy of marine knowledge and the weakness of the sailor's courage. Not but that I readily allow we are more subject to bad weather and hard gales of wind than the coasts of Spain, Italy, and Barbary. But if this be allowed, our improvement in the art of building ships is so considerable, our vessels are so prepared to ride out the most violent storms, that the fury of the sea is the least thing our sailors fear. Keep them but from a lee shore, or touching upon a sand, they'll venture all the rest, and nothing is a greater satisfaction to them, if they have a storm in view, than a sound bottom and good sea-room. From hence it comes to pass that such winds as in those days would have passed for storms are called only a fresh gale, or blowing hard. If it blows enough, to fright a south-country sailor, we laugh at it, 
and if our sailors' bald terms were set down in a table of degrees, it will explain what we mean. Stark calm. A topsail gale. Calm weather. Blows fresh. Little wind. A hard gale of wind. A fine breeze. A fret of wind. A small gale. A storm. A fresh gale. A tempest. Just half these tarpaulin articles, I presume, would have passed in those days for a storm, and that our sailors call a top-sail gale, would have drove the navigators of those ages into harbours. When our sailors reef a topsail, they would have handled all their sails, and when we go under a main course, they would have run afore it for life to the next port they could make. When our hard gale blows, they would have cried a tempest, and about the fret of wind, they would be all at their prayers. And if we should reckon by this account, we are a stormy country indeed, our seas are no more navigable now for such sailors than they were then. If the Japoneses, the East Indians, and such like navigators were to come with their thin cockle-shell barks and calico sails, if Cleopatra's fleet or Caesar's great ships with which he fought the battle of Actium were to come upon our seas, there hardly comes a March or a September in twenty years, but would blow them to pieces and then the poor remnant that got home would go and talk of a terrible country, where there's nothing but storms and tempests, where all the matter is the weakness of their shipping and the ignorance of their seamen. And I make no question, but our ships ride out many a worse storm than that terrible tempest which scattered Julius Caesar's fleet or the same that drove Aeneas on the coast of Carthage. And in more modern times we have a famous instance in the Spanish Armada, which, after it was rather frighted than damaged by Sir Francis Drake's machines, not then known by the name of fire-ships, were scattered by a terrible storm, and lost upon every shore. The case is plain. T'was all owing to the accident of navigation. They had no doubt a hard gale of wind, and perhaps a storm. But they were also on an enemy's coast, their pilots out of their knowledge, no harbour to run into, and an enemy astern, that when once they separated, Fear drove them from one danger to another, and away they went to the northward, where they had nothing but God's mercy, and the winds and seas to help them. In all these storms and distresses which ruined that fleet, we do not find an account of the loss of one ship, either of the 
English or Dutch. The Queen's fleet rode it out in the Downs, which all men know is none of the best roads in the world, and the Dutch rode among the flats of the Flemish coasts, while the vast galleons, not so well fitted for the weather, were forced to keep the sea, and were driven to and fro, till they got out of their knowledge, and, like men desperate, embraced every danger that came near. This long digression I could not but think needful, in order to clear up the case, having never met with anything on this head before. At the same time tis allowed, and histories are full of the particulars, that we have often very high winds, and sometimes violent tempests in these northern parts of the world, but I am still of opinion such a tempest never happened before as that which is the subject of these sheets, and I refer the reader to the particulars. End of chapter 2 of The Storm Chapter 3 of The Storm by Daniel Defoe This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Storm in General Before we come to examine the damage suffered by this terrible night, and give a particular relation of its dismal effects, tis necessary to give a summary account of the thing itself, with all its affrightening circumstances. It had blown exceeding hard, as I have already observed, for about fourteen days past, and that so hard that we thought it terrible weather. Several stacks of chimneys were blown down, and several ships were lost, and the tiles in many places were blown off from the houses, and the nearer it came to the fatal 26th of November, the tempestuousness of the weather increased. On the Wednesday morning before, being the 24th of November, it was fair weather and blew hard, but not so as to give any apprehensions, till about four o'clock in the afternoon the wind increased and with squalls of rain and terrible gusts, blew very furiously. The collector of these sheets narrowly escaped the mischief of a part of a house, which fell on the evening of that day by the violence of the wind, and abundance of tiles were blown off the houses that night. The wind continued with unusual violence all the next day and night and had not the great storm followed so soon, this had passed for a great wind. On Friday morning it continued to blow exceeding hard, but not so as that it gave any apprehensions of danger within doors. Towards night it increased, 
and about ten o'clock our barometers informed us that the night would be very tempestuous the mercury sunk lower than ever i had observed it on any occasion whatsoever which made me suppose the tube had been handled and disturbed by the children but as my observations of this nature are not regular enough to supply the reader with a full information the disorders of that dreadful night having found me other employment expecting every moment when the house i was in would bury us all in its own ruins i have therefore subjoined a letter from an ingenious gentleman on this very head directed to the royal society and printed in the philosophical transactions number two eighty nine page fifteen thirty as follows a letter from the reverend mr william durham f r s containing his observations concerning the late storm sir according to my promise at the general meeting of the r s on st andrew's day i here send you enclosed the account of my ingenious and inquisitive friend richard townley esq concerning the state of the atmosphere in that part of lancashire where he liveth in the late dismal storm and i hope it will not be unacceptable to accompany his with my own observations at upminster especially since i shall not weary you with a long history of the devastations etc but rather some particulars of a more philosophical consideration and first i do not think it improper to look back to the preceding seasons of the year i scarce believe i shall go out of the way to reflect as far back as april may june and july because all these were wet months in our southern parts in april there fell twelve point four nine litres of rain through my tunnel and about six seven eight or nine litres i esteem a moderate quantity for upminster in may there fell more than in any month of any year since the year sixteen ninety six viz twenty point seven seven litres june likewise was a dripping month in which fell fourteen point five five litres and july although it had considerable intermissions yet had fourteen point nineteen litres above eleven litres of which fell on july twenty eighth and twenty ninth in violent showers and i remember the newspapers gave accounts of great rains that month from divers places of europe but the north of england which also escaped the violence of the late storm was not so remarkably wet in any of those months at least not in that great proportion more than we as usually they are as i guess from the tables of rain with which mr townley hath favoured me particularly july was a dry month with them 
there being no more than 3.65 litres of rain fell through Mr. Townley's tunnel of the same diameter with mine. From these months let us pass to September, and that we shall find to have been a wet month, especially the latter part of it. There fell of rain in that month 14.86 litres. October and November last, although not remarkably wet, yet have been open warm months for the most part. My thermometer, whose freezing point is about 84, hath been very seldom below a hundred all this winter, and especially in November. Thus I have laid before you as short account as I could of the preceding disposition of the year, particularly as to wet and warmth, because I am of opinion that these had a great influence in the late storm, not only in causing a repletion of vapours in the atmosphere, but also in raising such nitrosulfurous or other heterogeneous matter, which then mixed together might make a sort of explosion, like fired gunpowder in the atmosphere. And from this explosion I judge these coruscations, or flashes in the storm, to have proceeded, which most people as well as myself observed, and which some took for lightning. But these things I leave to better judgments, such as that very ingenious member of our society who hath undertaken the province of the late tempest, to whom, if you please, you may impart these papers, Mr. Hawley, you know I mean. From preliminaries it is time to proceed nearer to the tempest itself, and the foregoing day, viz. Thursday, November 25th, I think deserveth regard. In the morning of that day was a little rain, the winds high in the afternoon, south by east and south. In the evening there was lightning, and between nine and ten of the clock at night a violent but short storm of wind, and much rain at Upminster, and of hail in some other places, which did some damage. There fell in that storm 1.65 litres of rain. The next morning, which was Friday, November 26th, the wind was south-southwest, and high all day, and so continued till I was in bed and asleep. About twelve that night the storm awakened me, which gradually increased till near three that morning, and from thence till near seven it continued in the greatest excess, and then began slowly to abate, and the mercury to rise swiftly. The barometer I found at 12.30 p.m. at 28.72, where it continued till about 6 the next morning, or 6.15, and then hastily rose so that it was gotten to 82 about 8 of the clock, as in the table. How the wind sat during the late storm I cannot positively say, 
it being excessively dark all the while, and my vein blown down also, when I could have seen. But by information from millers and others that were forced to venture abroad, and by my own guess, I imagine it to have blown about southwest by south, or nearer to the south in the beginning, and to veer about towards the west, towards the end of the storm, as far as west-southwest. The degrees of the wind's strength being not measurable, that I know of, though talked of, but by guess I thus determine with respect to other storms. On February 7th, 1698 or 9, was a terrible storm that did much damage. This I number ten degrees. The wind then west-northwest, vid PHTR number 262. Another remarkable storm was February 3rd, 1701 or 2, at which time was the greatest descent of the mercury ever known. This I number nine degrees. But this last of November, I number at least fifteen degrees. As to the stations of the barometer, you have Mr. Townley's and mine in the following table to be seen at one view. A table showing the height of the mercury in the barometer at Townley and Upminster before in and after the storm. Townley, day November 25th, hour 7, height of Mercury 28.98, hour 3, height of Mercury 64, hour 9.5, height of Mercury 61. Upminster, day November 25th, hour 8, height of Mercury, 29.50, hour 12, height of Mercury, 39, hour 9, height of Mercury, 14, Townley, November 26th, hour 7, height of Mercury, 80. Hour 3, height of Mercury, 79. Hour 9 and 1 eighth, 47. Upminster, November 26th. Hour 8, height of Mercury, 33. Hour 12, height of Mercury, 28. 10. Hour 12 and a half, height of Mercury, 28. 72. Townley, November 27th. Hour 7, height of Mercury, 50. Hour 3, height of Mercury, 81. Hour 9 and a half, height of Mercury, 95. Upminster, November 27th. Hour 7 and a half, height of Mercury, 82. Hour 12, height of Mercury, 
31. Hour 9, height of Mercury 42. Townley, November 28th. Hour 7, height of Mercury 29, 34. Hour 3, height of Mercury 62. Hour 9, height of Mercury 84. Upminster, November 28th. Hour 8, height of Mercury 65. Hour 12, height of Mercury 83. Hour 9, height of Mercury 30. 7. Townley, November 29th. Hour 7, height of Mercury 88. Upminster, Upminster, hour 8, height of Mercury 25. As to November 17th, whereon Mr. Townley mentions a violent storm in Oxfordshire, it was a stormy afternoon here at Upminster, accompanied with rain, but not violent, nor mercury very low. November 11th and 12th had both higher winds and more rain, and the mercury was those days lower than even in the last storm of November 26th. Thus, sir, I have given you the truest account I can of what I thought most to deserve observation, both before and in the late storm. I could have added some other particulars, but that I fear I have already made my letter long and am tedious. I shall therefore only add that I have accounts of the violence of the storm at Norwich, Beckley's, Sudbury, Colchester, Rockford, and several other intermediate places. But I need not tell particulars, because I question not, but you have better informations. Thus far, Mr. Durham's letter. It did not blow so hard till twelve o'clock at night, but that most families went to bed, though many of them not without some concern at the terrible wind, which then blew. But about one, or at least by two o'clock, tis supposed, a few people that were capable of any sense of danger were so hardy as to lie in bed, and the fury of the tempest increased to such a degree that, as the editor of this account being in London, and conversing with the people the next days, understood most people expected the fall of their houses. And yet in this general apprehension, nobody durst quit their tottering habitations, for whatever the danger was within doors, twas worse without. The bricks, tiles, and stones from the tops of the houses flew with such force and so thick in the streets that no one thought fit to venture out, though their houses were near demolished within. The author of this relation was in a well-built brick house in the skirts of the city, and a stack of chimneys falling in upon the next houses gave the house such a shock 
that they thought it was just coming down upon their heads but opening the door to attempt an escape into a garden the danger was so apparent that all thought fit to surrender to the disposal of almighty providence and expect their graves in the ruins of the house rather than to meet most certain destruction in the open garden for unless they could have gone above two hundred yards from any building there had been no security for the force of the wind blew the tiles point-blank though their weight inclines them downward and in several very broad streets we saw the windows broken by the flying of tile sherds from the other side and where there was room for them to fly the author of this has seen tiles blown from a house above thirty or forty yards and stuck from five to eight inches into the solid earth pieces of timber iron and sheets of lead have from higher buildings been blown much farther as in the particulars hereafter will appear it is the received opinion of abundance of people that they felt during the impetuous fury of the wind several movements of the earth and we have several letters which affirm it but as an earthquake must have been so general that everybody must have discerned it and as the people were in their houses when they imagined they felt it the shaking and terror of which might deceive their imagination and impose upon their judgment i shall not venture to affirm it was so and being resolved to use so much caution in this relation as to transmit nothing to posterity without authentic vouchers and such testimony as no reasonable man will dispute so if any relation come in our way which may afford us a probability though it may be related for the sake of its strangeness or novelty it shall nevertheless come in the company of all its uncertainties and the reader left to judge of its truth for this account had not been undertaken but with design to undeceive the world of false relations and to give an account backed with such authorities as that the credit of it should admit of no disputes for this reason i cannot venture to affirm that there was any such thing as an earthquake but the concern and consternation of all people was so great that i cannot wonder at their imagining several things which were not any more than their enlarging on things that were since nothing is more frequent than for fear to double every object and impose upon the understanding strong apprehensions being apt very often to persuade us of the reality of such things which we have no other reasons to show for the probability of than what are grounded in those fears which prevail at that juncture others thought 
they heard thunder. Tis confessed, the wind, by its unusual violence, made such a noise in the air as had a resemblance to thunder, and twas observed. The roaring had a voice as much louder than usual as the fury of the wind was greater than was ever known. The noise had also something in it more formidable. It sounded aloft, and roared not very much unlike remote thunder. And yet, though I cannot remember to have heard it thunder, or that I saw any lightning, or heard of any that did in or near London, yet in the counties the air was seen full of meteors and vaporous fires, and in some places both thunderings and unusual flashes of lightning, to the great terror of the inhabitants. And yet I cannot but observe here how fearless such people as are addicted to wickedness are both of God's judgments and uncommon prodigies, which is visible in this particular, that a gang of hardened rogues assaulted a family at Poplar, in the very height of the storm, broke into the house and robbed them. It is observable that the people cried thieves, and after that cried fire, in hopes to raise the neighbourhood and to get some assistance. But such is the power of self-preservation, and such was the fear the minds of the people were possessed with that nobody would venture out to the assistance of the distressed family, who were rifled and plundered in the middle of all the extremity of the tempest. It would admit of a large comment here, and perhaps not very unprofitable, to examine from what sad defects in principle it must be that men can be so destitute of all manner of regard to invisible and superior power, to be acting one of the vilest parts of a villain, while infinite power was threatening the whole world with desolation, and multitudes of people expected the last day was at hand. Several women in the city of London who were in travail, or who fell into travail by the fright of the storm, were obliged to run the risk of being delivered with such help as they had, and midwives found their own lives in such danger that few of them thought themselves obliged to show any concern for the lives of others. Fire was the only mischief that did not happen to make the night completely dreadful, and yet that was not so everywhere, for in Norfolk the town of Blank was almost ruined by a furious fire, which burnt with such vehemence, and was so fanned by the tempest, that the inhabitants had no power to concern themselves in the extinguishing it. The wind blew the flames, together with the ruins, so about that there was no standing near it, for if the people came to windward, 
they were in danger to be blown into the flames, and if to leeward the flames were so blown up in their faces, they could not bear to come near it. If this disaster had happened in London, it must have been very fatal, for as no regular application could have been made for the extinguishing it, so the very people in danger would have had no opportunity to have saved their goods, and hardly their lives, for though a man will run any risk to avoid being burnt, yet it must have been next to a miracle if any person so obliged to escape from the flames had escaped being not on the head in the streets, for the bricks and tiles flew about like small shot, and t'was a miserable sight in the morning after the storm to see the streets covered with tile-shirts and heaps of rubbish from the tops of the houses lying almost at every door. From two of the clock the storm continued, and increased till five in the morning, and from five to half an hour after six it blew with the greatest violence. The fury of it was so exceeding great for that particular hour and a half, that if it had not abated as it did, nothing could have stood its violence much longer. In this last part of the time, the greatest part of the damage was done, Several ships that rode it out till now gave up all, for no anchor could hold. Even the ships in the river of Thames were all blown away from their moorings, and from Execution Dock to Limehouse Hole there was but our ships that rid it out. The rest were driven down into the bite, as the sailors call it, from Bellwurf to Limehouse, where they were huddled together and drove on shore, heads and sterns, one upon the other, in such a manner as any one would have thought it had been impossible, and the damage done on that account was incredible. Together with the violence of the wind, the darkness of the night added to the terror of it, and as it was just new moon, the spring tides being then up at about four o'clock, made the vessels which were afloat in the river drive the farther up upon the shore, of all which in the process of this story we shall find very strange instances. The points from whence the wind blew are variously reported from various hands. Tis certain it blew all the day before at southwest, and I thought it continued so till about two o'clock, when, as near as I could judge by the impressions it made on the house, for we durst not look out, it veered to the south-southwest, then to the west, and about six o'clock to west by north, and still more northward it shifted the harder it blew till it shifted again southerly about seven o'clock and as it did so it gradually abated 
About eight o'clock in the morning it ceased so much that our fears were also abated, and people began to peep out of doors, but tis impossible to express the concern that appeared in every place. The distraction and fury of the night was visible in the faces of the people, and everybody's first work was to visit and inquire after friends and relations. The next day or two was almost entirely spent in the curiosity of the people, in viewing the havoc the storm had made, which was so universal in London, and especially in the out parts, that nothing can be said sufficient to describe it. Another unhappy circumstance with which this disaster was joined was a prodigious tide which happened the next day but one and was occasioned by the fury of the winds which is also a demonstration that the winds veered for part of the time to the northward and as it is observable and known by all that understand our sea affairs that a north-west wind makes the highest tide so this blowing to the northward and that with such unusual violence brought up the sea raging in such a manner that in some parts of england twas incredible the water rising six or eight foot higher than it was ever known to do in the memory of man by which ships were fleeted up upon the firm land several rods off from the banks and an incredible number of cattle and people drowned, as in the pursuit of this story will appear. It was a special providence that so directed the waters that in the river of Thames, the tide, though it rise higher than usual, yet it did not so prodigiously exceed, but the height of them as it was, proved very prejudicial to abundance of people whose cellars and warehouses were near the river, and had the water risen a foot higher, all the marshes and levels on both sides the river had been overflowed, and a great part of the cattle drowned. Though the storm abated with the rising of the sun, it still blew exceeding hard, so hard that no boats durst stir out on the river, but on extraordinary occasions, and about three o'clock in the afternoon, the next day being Saturday, it increased again, and we were in a fresh consternation, lest it should return with the same violence. At four it blew an extreme storm, with sudden gusts as violent as any time of the night, but as it came with a great black cloud and some thunder, it brought a hasty shower of rain, which allayed the storm, so that in a quarter of an hour it went off, and only continued blowing as before. This sort of weather held all Sabbath day and Monday, till on Tuesday afternoon it increased again, and all Tuesday night it blew with such fury that 
many families were afraid to go to bed, and had not the former terrible night hardened the people to all things less than itself, this night would have passed for a storm fit to have been noted in our almanacs. Several stacks of chimneys that stood out the great storm were blown down in this. Several ships which escaped in the great storm perished this night, and several people who had repaired their houses had them untiled again. Not but that I may allow those chimneys that fell now might have been disabled before. At this rate, it held blowing till Wednesday about one o'clock in the afternoon, which was that day seven night on which it began, so that it might be called one continued storm from Wednesday noon to Wednesday noon, in all which time there was not one interval of time in which a sailor would not have acknowledged it blew a storm, and in that time two such terrible nights as I have described, and this I particularly noted as to time, Wednesday, November the 24th, was a calm, fine day, as at that time of year shall be seen, till above four o'clock when it began to be cloudy, and the wind rose of a sudden, and in half an hour's time it blew a storm. Wednesday, December the 2nd, it was very tempestuous all the morning. At one o'clock the wind abated, the sky cleared, and by four o'clock there was not a breath of wind. Thus ended the greatest and the longest storm that ever the world saw. The effects of this terrible providence are the subject of the ensuing chapter, and I close this with a pastoral poem sent us among the accounts of the storm from a very ingenious author, and desired to be published in this account. A PASTORAL, OCCASIONED BY THE LATE VIOLENT STORM DAMON MELIBIUS DAMON Walking alone by pleasant Isis' side, Where the two streams their wanton course divide, And gently forward in soft murmurs glide, Pensive and sad, I, Melibius, meet and thus the melancholy shepherd greet. Kind swain, what cloud dares overcast your brow, bright as the skies, or happy, Nile till now? Does Chloe prove unkind, or some new fair? Melibius, no, Damon, mine's a public nobler care, such in which you and all the world must share. One friend may mollify another's grief, but public loss admits no relief. Damon, I guess your cause, O oh, you that used to sing of beauty's charms and the delights of spring, now change your note, 
and let your lute rehearse the dismal tale in melancholy verse melibius prepare then lovely swain prepare to hear the worst report that ever reached your ear my bower you know hard by yon shady grove a fit recess for damon's pensive love as there dissolved i in sweet slumbers lay tired with the toils of the precedent day the blustering winds disturbed my kind repose till frightened with the threatening blasts i rose but oh what havoc did the day disclose those charming willows which on cherwell's banks flourished and thrived and grew in evener ranks than those which followed the divine command of orpheus lyre or sweet amphion's hand by hundreds fall while hardly twenty stand the stately oaks which reach the azure sky and kiss the very clouds now prostrate lie long a huge pine did with the winds contend this way and that his reeling trunk they bend till forced at last to yield with hideous sound he falls and all the country feels the wound nor was the god of winds content with these such humble victims can't his wrath appease the river swell not like the happy nile to fatten dew and fructify our isle but like the deluge by great jove designed to drown the universe and scourge mankind in vain the frighted cattle climb so high in vain for refuge to the hills they fly the waters know no limits but the sky so now the bleating flock exchange in vain for barren cliffs their dewy fertile plain in vain their fatal destiny to shun from severn's banks to higher grounds they run nor was the navy better quarter found there we received our worst our deepest wound the billows swell and haughty neptune raves the winds insulting o'er the impetuous waves thetis incensed rises with angry frown and once more threatens all the world to drown and owns no power but england's and her own yet the aeolian god dares vent his rage and even the sovereign of the seas engage what though the mighty charles of spain's on board the winds obey none but their blustering lord some ships were stranded some by the surges rent down with their cargo to the bottom went the absorbent ocean could desire no more so well regaled he never was before the hungry fish could hardly wait 
the day when the sun's beams should chase the storm away but quickly seize with greedy jaws their prey damon so the great trojan by the hand of fate and haughty power of angry juno's hate while with like aim he crossed the seas was tossed from shore to shore from foreign coast to coast yet safe at last his mighty point he gained in charming promised peace and splendour reigned Melibius. so may great charles whom equal glories move like the great dardan prince successful prove like him with honour may he mount the throne and long enjoy a brighter destined crown end of chapter three of the storm everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price ba-da-ba-ba-ba